You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 9th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, it's a new year, and I hope you're all feeling reinvigorated after a nice holiday break. I know I am. Energy Transition is picking up speed all over the world, which I find very encouraging. And I'm as excited as a child on Christmas morning to see what new developments 2019 will bring. I sincerely doubt that anyone got coal in their stockings this time around, though. Not when solar and wind are so much cheaper. Before we dive into today's topic, I'm very pleased to announce a new and expanded search capability on our website. Subscribers can now log into the site and find episodes by air date or by geek rating, plus search the text of all the show notes and show transcripts. So it's easier than ever to find that one little thing you remember hearing on a previous show, but you can't really remember what episode it was in. Plus, sorting episodes by geek rating now makes it easy to find shows that will be appropriate to your knowledge level, whether you're a newcomer or a grizzled veteran of energy transition. So log into the site and try it out. And if you've never logged into the site and only access a show on your phone, you've been missing out. Log in and have a good look at the show notes and the interactive transcript player for any episode. There's a ton of great information and functionality in there, and we want our subscribers to get the full value out of it. And if you're still not a subscriber, well, I guess you'll just have to live with the crappy old search feature. All right, on with the show. Are investments in energy efficiency worth it, or does efficiency just make energy cheaper because we're using less of it, encouraging customers to use more of it? This question, variously known as the rebound effect, the backfire hypothesis, and the Jevons paradox, has been used to suggest that not only are energy efficiency investments of questionable value, they might even lead to an absolute increase in energy consumption. So what's the truth? What evidence do we have either way? And for that matter, how do we even measure the outcomes, given all the complicating factors? And what about rooftop solar systems? Once you add up all the costs and benefits of deploying rooftop solar, is it worth it? Or would it be better to spend limited funds on utility-scale projects, or something else entirely, like efficiency? Or are those even the right questions to ask if deep decarbonization means that we'll ultimately need to do everything? And speaking of utility-scale wind and solar farms, do they have the same climate benefits no matter where they're built, or do policymakers and project developers need to think hard about whether they will be worth the investment on the particular grid to which they'll be connected? And how about electric vehicles? Are they worth it? Does buying an EV mean that you're helping to reduce emissions no matter where you live? And might that answer change in the future? And if you know, or think you know, the answers to these questions, do you also know the expiration dates of your answers, given how rapidly energy transition is proceeding? What do you know that just ain't so? 
Tough questions all around, but our guest today has researched all of them. Dr. Inesh Azevedo is a professor in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University, where her research into energy transition combines engineering and technology analysis with economic and decision science, making her a uniquely qualified expert on the many questions around whether transition investments are worth it. She has published extensively on all these subjects, and it's a real privilege to have her on the show. I suppose I should also note that Inesh is the third guest we've had from the Carnegie Mellon University, which I believe makes that fine institution the top university represented on the Energy Transition Show so far. And that's appropriate since they recently acquired a site license so that anyone with an email address at the school can now enjoy our full subscriber offerings. So if you're at Carnegie Mellon and don't have full access yet, just contact your school library for information on how to register your account or drop a line to support at energytransitionshow.com. And if you're a professor or a student at another institution that might be interested in making the Energy Transition Show available to your entire campus, drop us an email and we'll get the ball rolling. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll look at a slew of exciting new energy transition moves being made in Colorado. We'll unearth some recent covert attempts by the oil industry to fight off fuel economy standards and support for electric vehicles in the U.S. We'll note a new attempt by the Trump administration to support coal. And we'll explore the significance of new electricity rates in California. But first, our conversation with Dr. Inesh Azevedo, recorded December 11, 2018. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Inesh, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. You've done a lot of work on the rebound effect, otherwise variously known as the backfire hypothesis or the Jevons paradox, which is the idea that as efficiency measures reduce energy consumption, energy gets cheaper, and that encourages people to use more energy. Now, a lot of wild claims have been made about the rebound effect, such as saying that investments in efficiency aren't worthwhile because of it, or that it will not reduce consumption, so it cannot reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or that investments in efficiency actually lead to increases in greenhouse gas emissions because the rebound is actually net positive. So we touched on this topic briefly with Gernot Wagner in episode 68, and we discussed it further with your colleague Costa Samaras in episode 75. But I still get a fair bit of listener email wondering about just how much of a rebound effect there really is and what it suggests about efficiency and investments in mitigating climate change. So what does your research on the rebound effect actually show? So first of all, thank you so much, Chris, for this conversation. This is really exciting. And before I forget about this, I would really like to thank both my PhD students and co-authors at Carnegie Mellon and in other places that have basically made this the best job in the world <laughs> that one could have. <laughs> and really, like working on all these exciting questions and getting to pick and choose the relevant questions that we want to work on. And without further ado, let's go back to your question about what does the rebound effect research shows. And <laughs> I'll start by saying a lot of uncertainty. Hmm. That's what it really shows. Hmm. The first thing is that we talk about rebound effects often without defining them. And so there are all sorts of different rebound effects, direct, indirect, and economy-wide. And let me explain a little bit about what each of those represents. So really the direct re rebound effect represents the issue that you pursue an energy efficiency investment, like changing all your light bulbs from incandescents to LEDs, for example. You save some money overall in that energy service, despite the potential higher upfront costs. Even that is a question mark now with the LEDs, though. And you're going to just 
leave the lights on for a longer period of time because you know you're saving money. Now, when we talk about the indirect rebound effects, this is really going back to that example with the lights. You have some money that you're saving and you may actually increase the amount of miles you drive or expenses in food or something else with that money. And then it itself has some energy and greenhouse gas effects associated with it. And finally, the economy-wide rebound effects, where if you think about an overall energy efficiency policy that is pursued by the nation, that may make the energy services cheaper and it leads to overall readjustments of the supply and demand of both that sector and other sectors in the economy. As we go from the direct rebound effect to the economy-wide, there are further, more and more layers of uncertainty and modeling challenges. But even when we think about the direct rebound effect, that's kind of a question mark. So more broadly, the way the rebound effects is defined is the relative difference between potential energy or greenhouse gas savings that you'd achieve after inefficiency intervention, if you assume that there are no rebound effects in place versus the amount of energy savings or GG savings that you get when you do take those into account. And of course, this is still a little bit vague, but the point being that the boundary of analysis that one considers will matter. I think another point is that we don't really care about rebound effects percentage-wise. That's just a poor metric and not super insightful for decision-making purposes. I think what we care about is really the consequences in terms of absolute CO2 emissions or health damages from air pollution that result from that effect, and whether that's small or large. So though the literature on rebound effects generally reports these numbers percentage-wise, when you look across different types of cases, energy services, energy fuels or carriers, they are really talking about the different things. And the fuel or energy carrier really matters. So in the example on investing in energy efficient lights, if you're doing that in Pennsylvania, where you still have some amount of coal and natural gas versus comparing it with California, where you have a very clean grid, you'll have potentially the same rebound effects percentage wise, but the amount of emissions that you're talking about are completely different. Because of the character of the grid power. Because of the character of the grid power, that's right on. So if you're investing in an energy efficient strategy on heating devices that use natural gas and start trying to track the indirect rebound effects that you get from the money saved in that efficiency intervention, and you're spending some of that money in electricity, if you're in California or in Pennsylvania, it's really going to matter in terms of the consequences that you're looking at. And looking at the rebound percentage-wise and just in energy terms masks those sorts of effects. Right. Okay. Now, more specifically, what we've done in some of this work is to use simulation. And now we, you can beat me up for the use of simulation versus actual quasi-experimental settings. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But the simulation that we've done is just, let's assume that the average U.S. household, and then we did the same thing for average U.S. households across different states, would pursue efficiency interventions that would reduce their electricity bill or their natural gas bill or their gasoline bill by 10%. 
what happens then and what is the potential size of the rebound effects that we would see both in energy, carbon and criteria pollution emissions terms. So how do we address that question using simulation? Well, the first point is that we need to know what's the carbon footprint or the energy footprint of the households and to do so requires a life cycle perspective. So we've used models like the IEO-LCA, the Environmental Input-Output Lifecycle Assessment developed at Carnegie Mellon, and matched the types of expenditures that the households has on different goods and services with both the direct and all the upstream emissions from those goods and services. So it turns out that at the time we did the study, which was a few years back, an average U.S. household contributed with 46 or something in that range, 46 tons of CO2 equivalent per household. Then we need to see how can we now go from there to understand the size of rebound. So the next step is how do you simulate in this framework the effect of an energy efficiency strategy? And we did it in a very simple way, which is let's think about efficiency strategies that would reduce the energy bills of those different energy fuels or carriers by 10%. And then understanding what happens and assume different types of scenarios would I spend my money saved on that energy efficiency strategy in a proportional way to what I was doing in the first place? Would I behave taking into account my price and income elasticities for the different goods and services? Or would I just simply put that money aside? We really don't know, right? When we are trying to have representations on how the consumers would operate. And across those scenarios, what we find is that we really are in the range of an indirect rebound effect of 5 to 15% in primary energy terms and in CO2 emissions when we assume a direct rebound effect. And this will depend a little bit on the fuel saved and on the household income too. But overall, it's a small effect. The rebound effect is not an enormous effect, at least when we put it in the context of a simulation using partial equilibrium models. Okay, so in this particular simulation of a residential setting, your efficiency measure, even with the rebound effect, you're still capturing sort of like 85, 90% of the efficiency improvement. You got it. Okay, so just because LED lighting is cheaper than your old incandescent bulbs doesn't mean you're now going to light up your living room like a stadium. That's right. Okay. Well, that's interesting to know because this question of is efficiency worth it, I think, is really sort of the underlying question here that keeps coming back. But, you know, for me, the weakness in the rebound effect argument, you know, in terms of it actually being sort of net positive, is that it's probably impossible to actually demonstrate an empirical causal connection between an efficiency improvement and greater consumption. In other words, you can't really show that, for example, the consumption of air conditioning is increasing because more efficient air conditioners are making air conditioners cheaper. You can never eliminate other factors, like the fact that our warming planet is causing more hotter weather in some places, which makes air conditioning more necessary. And you can't prove that air conditioning consumption wouldn't have continued to rise even if air conditioners hadn't gotten more efficient and cool air hadn't gotten a little cheaper. Am I on the right track with that? Oh, Chris, you're right on. <laughs> okay. I'm quite impressed that you got to that conclusion so quickly. You're much smarter <laughs> than I am, because on my end, it took quite a bit of time and effort to understand that this is a really difficult question yeah. when it comes to causality. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of our 
current work and challenges of things that are going on, where we started by being really excited about the use of a rich data set and hope that would get at the causality issue just to learn that that we can't say much. (laughs) So we had smart meter data for 30,000 households in California. For each of those households, we had one hour interval data. We also had information on what efficiency and other programs the households had enrolled in over time. We were able to track their energy consumption. And namely, we knew what types of rebate programs for energy efficient appliances they applied for. And we're hoping to understand the effect of those rebate programs on consumption and understand if there were any rebound effects. Of course, we controlled for weather over the course of the year. We included in the data set demographics at the census block level, the household sizes, and all of those things. And what we found initially in a preliminary approach is that the results showed that the energy consumption would indeed increase after people applied for rebates for energy-efficient appliances. So that was surprising. Like, are we seeing a rebound effect here? Maybe this is the case, maybe, maybe not. Then we explored some more. And we found that for some appliances, there was actually a recycling or scraping mandatory program for you to be entitled to the rebate, and for others not. And mm. so for those that had the recycling or scraping program, you'd see energy consumption going down after the rebate application. And that's the sort of policy outcome you'd want to see, right? So you're indeed substituting an old and more inefficient equipment for another one. Now, the question would be, what happened to the rest of the applications where no recycling or scraping was required and where we saw an increase in energy consumption? And you can see that two effects could come into play. One is that people already had the equipment that they were buying at home, like a refrigerator, and they would just buy the new one and move the old one to the basement to keep your beer cold, right? Right. That's super useful. And the alternative one would be that people didn't have that equipment yet at home, and they're actually just adding new stuff, new energy services that they would need and making usage of the rebate to do so. Mm-hmm. Now, from the data... And from our results, there was no way we could tell whether one effect or the other was going on. So we actually rolled out a separate survey for households in California that were living in that territory to ask them about it. We're not able to match, of course, the data set that we had from a utility with the participants in our survey. But we're just intrigued to see, okay, let's try to explore whether we see that in the time frame where we have this data, whether we see more that people have the old refrigerator in the basement or they are actually installing a new window AC that they didn't have before. And the survey indicated that it was more of the latter, meaning they were buying new equipment. Now, this gets even more complicated because at the same time, we're trying to learn as much as we could about the deployment of the rebate program And we learned that the rebate program is only offered at the point of sale. This means that we really don't have a counterfactual. People are Mm. out there, they're buying an equipment, it's likely to be a new equipment, and we have no way to tell what would be the equipment that they would buy if the rebate was not in place. So this was extremely 
exciting and extremely frustrating because yeah. finally what we learn is that this is extremely difficult to track when it comes to energy efficiency program evaluation. They are likely delivering some very important results, but there are simply no tools to understand the magnitude of that. We can rely on technical resource manuals as a starting point, and I think Please, by all means, don't take all the sentences that I'm saying as energy efficiency programs are a bad thing. That's not at all the case. They're likely to be extremely successful. But all these issues of program evaluation, as well as rebound effects quantification, are very, very hard on the modeling setting. Uh -huh. Now, some colleagues could argue we can do randomized controlled trials to address those sorts of issues. And to some extent that helps. And there is some really interesting work coming out of my colleagues that are energy and resource economists on that front. But when it comes to the real world setting, we're rolling out policies and incentives. And so doing randomized controlled trials really doesn't help us because the types of behaviors and adoption that you'll see there are likely to be very different from what you see in an RCT. So I think we just have to be very humble about all these efforts on what we can learn on the quantitative front about rebound effects, frankly. Yeah, especially if you're trying to come up with sort of a policy around efficiency on like a national level, right? Like if you were trying to design a policy around air conditioner adoption in India, for example, you know, this huge country with all these people, all these different use cases, all these different situations, very difficult to make any clear line of distinction around what behaviors you're going to actually affect, how much of a rebound effect there might be, and so on. I mean, you know, again, on the causality side, I mean, even William Stanley Jevons didn't, as far as I know, actually make a causal connection. He's given this honor of this thing being called, you know, the Jevons paradox, but he only observed that more efficient steam engines in his late 19th century world led to more use of the steam engine. He didn't actually prove that we wouldn't have continued using steam engines for more things, even if they hadn't become more efficient. Coal use went up because the use of steam engines was spreading. And while efficiency may have been part of the reason for that, it's certainly not the only reason. I mean, industrialization was the fundamental, right? So as in income increases, particularly where very impoverished people are finally getting access to a few of life's basic amenities, you know, like air conditioning, the income effect alone will drive an increasing demand for energy services. So I wonder what the real importance of the rebound effects is since we can only really make associative conclusions about them, not tightly bound causal conclusions. Well, I strongly agree with you. I think, first of all, that making statements like energy efficiency policies don't work because in the long run, rebound effects are going to erode all the energy savings is really nonsense. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show.
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The U.S. state of Colorado made two important advances in energy transition in December, and since that's now my home, I want to give it some appreciation. First, there were three noteworthy announcements on the generation side. Xcel Energy, the state's largest investor-owned utility, pledged to transition to an entirely carbon emissions-free portfolio by 2050, making it the first major multi-state U.S. utility with a commitment to completely phase out carbon emissions, according to the company. The announcement was in line with Xcel's so-called steel for fuel strategy, in which it is replacing coal plants with wind. In August, it received approval from Colorado regulators to retire 660 megawatts of coal capacity a decade earlier than planned. The company says the strategy is driven by the simple fact that it saves money for customers, since wind power is now cheaper than anything else, including natural gas, even at the remarkably low natural gas prices that America currently enjoys thanks to the shale gas boom. However, the company has not specified exactly which technologies that it thinks can achieve the full decarbonization goal, and indicated that it may need to turn to carbon capture, nuclear, or other technologies that are not yet cost-effective or commercially available. A few days later, the Platte River Power Authority, a municipal utility serving several northern Colorado communities, announced its intention to transition to a carbon-free portfolio by 2030 in response to an ongoing campaign led by residents. The utility identified nine things that will be needed to meet the goal, including storage solutions, more transmission and distribution infrastructure, modern grid management systems, and new rate structures. And the day after that, Colorado Electric Cooperative Delta Montrose Electric Association filed with state regulators to end its relationship with Tri-State, a coal-heavy generation supplier, and seek renewable energy instead, citing their lower costs as the motivation. Item 2. Colorado made a significant move toward using more battery storage as well. State regulators adopted an order that will require utilities to consider storage. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.